If you have your Bibles, open up with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and if you're taking notes this morning, I hope that you are. I have just a few things that I would love for you to walk away with this morning. My prayer is that you would walk away encouraged this morning, that you would walk away having an even brighter view of Jesus Christ. Aren't you grateful for Jesus Christ on the cross this morning? Amen? Amen, I am. And the title, if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down at the top of your notes. The title of this morning's sermon, it's nothing crazy, it's straight from the text. Here it is. I am the light of the world. The title of our message this morning is I am the light of the world. Charles Blondine is not a name most of us know. It's the name that I was studying this past week. Charles Blondine was a French acrobat in the mid-1800s. In fact, I have a picture right here of what he did because his performances gathered global responses. In the 1860s, he was very, very famous. And you see him walking a tightrope right here. I want to tell you some of the things he did because they're crazy and I could never do them. Well, the first things he did is he walked across a 1,100-foot-wide tightrope 160 feet above the water. Gathered global attention. It was crazy. 1860. Walked across the tightrope, walked back. Then he upped the ante. He pushed a wheelbarrow across the tightrope. 160 feet above the water, 1,000 foot long line, pushed it all the way back. And then in front of a crowd, he's got a crowd standing around watching him do this. He grabs his agent and throws him on his back. I'm telling you. I get out of breath going up the stairs to the balcony. <laughs> I, just walking across and back is enough. But he grabs his agent, throws his agent on his back. You can imagine being his agent. I'm sure his agent was grateful for that. <laughs> he probably didn't have a, a say in that. Walks him across the rope, comes all the way back, sets him down. Crowd's going crazy. Uh, the story, here's how it goes. He looks at the crowd, Charles does, and he, see, he asks a question. He says, do you believe that I could do that with you? Some of you may know the story. He says, do you believe that I could do that with you? One of the People in the crowd, one of the men, looks at him and speaks up. This is what he says. He goes, of course, I've just seen you do it. It's a bold, vocal claim of faith. Charles looks at this man, and this is how the story goes. He says, okay, hop on. I'll take you across. <laughs> you can imagine. The man looks at Charles and basically says, yeah, no shot. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And the crowd busts out laughing at him. And it was funny because in this moment, this man made a claim that he wasn't prepared to back up. And Charles knew that when he asked the question. And I've never forgotten the story. I wrote down one of the reasons why. Uh, it was a faith with no trust. It was a faith spoken, but not a faith acted on, is what Charles saw from this person in the crowd. Even though his own eyes had witnessed exactly what Charles could do on that tightrope, when it came time to actually letting him carry him across, the fear was too much. And this morning, as we look at John 8, I have a question for you. And this is my question for you this morning. Are you claiming to have a faith that you're not actually prepared to act on? For you and me, we've been believers for a minute now. Are you claiming a faith that you're not prepared to act on? In fact, I'll take it one step further. Does your faith in Jesus Christ that you claim and vocalize have the trust necessary to allow him to carry you where you cannot lead yourself. See, that man knew there's no way on his own he's getting across that tightrope. 
But even when it came times to trusting Charles, who he knew he could do it, carry him where he couldn't go, his faith fell apart. And for a lot of us, I think that's where we are. I think a lot of us sometimes have a bigger faith that we claim than we actually live out. Now for us this morning, it's no secret that our, our world is very dark. How many of you know we live in a dark world? I have the great honor and burden, it's a blessing and a burden of sharing the gospel at University of Memphis every Monday. And I cannot tell you how many times I get rejected when I'm trying to share Jesus with college students and I'm the pastor. <laughs> they have no problem telling me, no, I don't want any coffee. <laughs> we get rejected every single Monday for trying to share Jesus. We live in a dark world, a world that's run by sin, a world and a culture that's run by sin. Our media is filled with sin. We live in a dark world. But even more than that, our lives, we struggle with things that real people go through. Anxiety, fear, depression, loneliness. We struggle with pride. We struggle with ego. We struggle with dying to ourselves. And so for you this morning, I don't know what darkness you walked in carrying. I don't know your storm. I'm not going to pretend to know your storm. But what I do know is no matter what darkness you're walking through, Jesus Christ is the light and the light of the world overcomes the darkness. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. So if you will, look with me at John chapter 8. And I have one thing for you to write down. If I could put in one sentence where we're going this morning, so you know where we are headed. Here it is. My sermon in a sentence is, the darkness of this world will drain the life from you, but the light of Christ gives life to you. Which are you living for? The darkness or the light? Now, in John chapter 8, we come to what really is a pivotal chapter in John. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, and what's amazing is you'll be very familiar with the buildup to this. That really, in the entire Bible has been building up to Jesus being the light of the world, but even more than that, remember where we are in John. For just a moment, remember that John chapter 6, John chapter 7, and John chapter 8 are all back-to-back-to-back fulfillments of the Old Testament. Remember in John 6, we see Jesus feed the 5,000. We see him provide the bread of life. He speaks on this. And this, of course, is fulfilling when Israel was provided manna in the wilderness when they were being led by God. So chapter 6, Jesus is the fulfillment of manna. He's the bread of life. He provides for the 5,000. He provides for you. It's a fulfillment all the way back to when God was leading Israel. But then in John chapter 7, a huge moment, you'll remember this. Jesus stands up after six months of no water and he proclaims, hey, I am living water. Anyone who drinks from me will never thirst again, but will have eternal life. Remember that bold claim? Which, just for context, if somebody stood up in the middle of that feast, at the very end of that feast, actually, and said something like that, we'd be a little shook. But Jesus is the only one that can make that claim. Now, John 6 is the fulfillment of Jesus being the bread of life, what God provided to Israel in the Old Testament. John chapter 7 is the fulfillment of Jesus being living water. That just as how God provided water for Israel in the desert, Jesus now provides living water to all who come to him. That's two. Then we come to John chapter eight. And here's what's very fascinating. You remember how God led Israel. He led Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Provided light wherever Israel needed to go, God was leading the charge. Well, now you have John six, you have John seven, and you have John eight, Jesus Christ being quite literally the light of the world. That we know God's word is a lamp unto our path, but Jesus is the light of our world that illuminates the darkness, fulfilling when God would lead Israel by the pillar of fire in the wilderness at night. And so, boom, back to back to back. What John is emphasizing here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of what is to come. He is the light of the world. So look with me at verse 2 of chapter 8, and let's walk through this. 
very briefly this morning. John chapter eight, starting in verse two, it says this. At dawn, Jesus, he went to the temple again and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. You'll know this, you'll know this story very well. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? Verse six, they asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger, this famous moment that we don't know what he wrote. He writes on the ground with his finger. Then they persisted in questioning him. They don't just ask once, they persist in questioning him. He stood up and said to them, here's the famous, famous line of Jesus. The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Isn't that a great response by Jesus? Can you imagine a better response? I can't, that's why he's the son of God. Verse eight, then he stooped down and continued writing on the ground. He didn't have to say anything else. That was enough. You can imagine the silence. We're gonna bring this to life in a moment. You can imagine the silence after he says that and goes back to writing just so that they can sit there and think. Verse nine, it says, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, no one, Lord. She answered, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on do not sin anymore. Verse 12, here it is. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray this morning, church family. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you so much for your word and how it doesn't return void. Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp unto our path, that your word is the source of our life. God, we thank you that you are a God who desires to know us and Lord, you're a God who desires for us to know you in a personal, intimate way. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. And Father, I pray that this morning, God, your spirit would go forth and you would speak through me, God. I pray that you would have every word to say this morning, Lord. I pray that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged by the light, by the hope that we have. I pray, Father, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord. I pray that you would challenge us and that we would not suppress that, but that we would be open to, to whatever it is that you are leading us to this morning. God, we're humbled to be in the house of yours this morning, Lord. We're humbled to be amongst people that we love, to be amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't have a personal relationship with you, that they would repent and give their life to you today, that they would leave knowing the light of the world for the very first time. So Father, we love you. And if that's your prayer this morning, would you say amen? Amen. Number one, I had two points for you. Very easy. I know Brother Steve comes with 10 sometimes. I got two for you. Very easy. And I love when he gives 10 points, just for the record. I write all 10 of them down and memorize them. Number one, here it is. I will always memorize them, if I can. When they're alliterated, I do. That's a bold claim. Somebody's going to test me on that. So Daniel, Pastor Sermon last week. Got those 10 alliterated points. 
Number one, the light shines at your lowest. And aren't you thankful it does? Number one this morning is the light shines at your lowest. Jesus being the light of the world is a major statement. This, of course, means, which is what goes back to my conversation with college students on campus, that he is not just a great rabbi or an interesting philosopher, but that he is, quite frankly, the Son of Man and the Son of God. That is crucial, that he has to be God in order to be the light of the world. There's no teacher, there's no philosopher, there's no basketball player, there's no professor who can claim to be the light of the world unless you are God, because God is the source of life and God is the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Now, what I wanna remind you this morning as an encouragement to you that, that all through scripture, this imagery, this symbolism of Jesus being the light has been building. And then I wanna remind you that Jesus is still the light of the world in our dark world today, because I think we forget that many times. And so look with me for a moment at Genesis, all the way back in chapter one, verses you're very familiar with, three and four. Then God said... Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Since the third verse of the Bible, God has been establishing a contrast between light and darkness. That's not just shades. That's quite frankly our world, light and darkness. But even more than that, what we referenced a moment ago about Exodus, here are those, those verses, I want to give those to you right now. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21 and 22 says this. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. In fact, if that's not good enough for you, I'll give you Psalm 78, verse 14. It says this, he led them with a the cloud by day and with a fiery light throughout the night, a fiery light. But not only when it comes to seeing and when it comes to walking, when it comes to our daily lives, understanding direction, understanding where we're supposed to go, understanding what we're supposed to do, that's fantastic. But bigger than just God leading us throughout our days, light is of course the symbol for our hope and our salvation. And I know somebody needs to hear this this morning. Somebody needs a fresh wind. And it's Psalm 27, verse one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Aren't you grateful to know Jesus Christ this morning? Amen. And if you know Jesus Christ, wouldn't you rejoice if somebody else gave their life to Jesus Christ this morning? Amen? Amen? I would. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? In other words, if I'm walking with the light of the world, what is there to fear in the darkness? What is there to be afraid of? What's scarier to come across? What's more intimidating to come across than the God of the universe? There's nothing. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? All through the Old Testament it is building to Jesus being the light of the world. And then John, in his very first chapter, you know it, establishes this before Jesus ever makes the I am statement. It's the beginning of John. It's the purpose of John. It's all laid out in chapter one, verse three to nine. I love it. All things were created through him, the word, Jesus. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Look at this. I love this. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. <laughs> Recognizing he's not God, but he has the great privilege to go and tell people about God. 
Have you realized quite yet that even in your world, you are not God, but you have been given the great privilege to go and tell people about God? He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. It goes on to say this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So when Jesus says he's the light of the world, that's a big deal. But even bigger than that, let me remind you, church family. John 8, when Jesus makes this statement, he pulls back the curtain on the characteristics and the nature of God. He pulls back the curtain on who he truly is. One word in John chapter 8, verse 12 is very important. And I don't know if you're underlining your Bibles, but if you do, I would encourage you to underline the word never. Never. Because this is so important. It's a fundamental foundational truth, but it's so hard to live out. Whether you've known it for six years like me or 20 years, it's so hard to live out. When Jesus says that those who follow him will never walk in darkness, this is revealing to us the characteristic that Jesus is a permanent light. Understand this for a moment. Jesus shines fully. Jesus does not shine partially. The sun in our world may set every 10 hours, but the light of the Son of God never sets. Let me go further. Jesus Christ does not just shine when you're on a mountaintop. He shines in the valley. Jesus Christ does not just shine when things are going well for you and for me. He shines even in the middle of our worst trial. Now you would say, Daniel, I get that. Praise God. But it's a whole lot harder to live it out when you're in the middle of that trial, is it not? Ooh, it's a whole lot harder. Some of you say, I know he's a permanent light, but man, it's hard to act like it when you don't see the light shining of Jesus because oftentimes we associate the light with the blessings of our world. But what happens when we go through a trial and some of our blessings are taken away? What I believe happens for me and for you is sometimes subconsciously, we buy the lie that Jesus is not shining for us or to us. And that's just real. But I gotta tell you, Jesus is a permanent light. He shines fully. There's no turning him off and on. So I don't know what you're walking through this morning. I don't know what lie the devil is planting in your head, but what I know this, it's very easy to buy the lie that Jesus does not have our best interests at heart when life gets hard. And maybe it's not even for you. Maybe it's your child or your brother or your sister. I don't know who it is. Even when we go through trial, sometimes it's easier, but when we watch a loved one go through trial, when we watch a loved one get sick, when we watch a child choose to live for the lost world and the lost culture and not live for Jesus, it's hard to believe that Jesus is the light to them too, isn't it? I understand for me, I lived a long time away from Jesus Christ and I was lost until I was 21 years old. And I just ran into Mr. Eric Watkins, who I didn't know at the time, but as I was in high school, he would pray with my mom while I was lost in high school. Had no idea who he was, had no idea they were praying. And he came up to me, he told me, Daniel, it's so cool to see you doing your thing now, to see God have a hold of you, because I was praying for you when you weren't living for him. It's like, that's crazy, man. People were praying for me when I was lost. And so let me tell you something. If you have a child that's not living for the Lord, keep praying, because it might be five years down the road. Just keep praying. Don't quit. Please don't quit. <laughs> Amen. As somebody who... People didn't quit on me. I don't know who it is in your life. Maybe you don't need to quit on yourself. But if there's somebody in your life you're discouraged over and you're hurt over and you're really wondering, can you put your hope and trust in Jesus? Let me encourage you. You can. 
Even when the world looks dark, even when your loved one's lives are dark, Jesus' light is still shining. Jesus' light is not dependent on you. Even though we elevate ourselves like the Pharisees do in this text, we elevate ourselves to a level we don't belong. Even when we ain't living right, Jesus is still shining. He's still on his throne. We can't turn off the light of Jesus Christ. And there's nobody in your life that can turn off the light of Jesus Christ. No matter what enemy you have, no matter what hurt or unforgiveness or bitterness you're walking through or who betrayed you, there's nobody who can take away your hope. They can take away your money. They can take away your clothes. They can take away your house. They might take away your life on this earth, but they can never take away the eternal life that you have. Never. Now let me flip it. Because I think about Matthew chapter five. Verse 14, I'll put it up there in a minute. If Jesus is a permanent light, If Jesus is a light that shines fully and not partially, then he is not calling part-time disciples to shine part-time. If he says he's the light of the world and he calls us to full-time discipleship, then I think about Matthew chapter five, verse 14, and I get convicted because it says, you are the light of the world. Jesus completely flips the script in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. So church family, let me ask you, Jesus' light is not dependent on us. He's going to shine no matter what we do. He's on his throne no matter what we do. But is you and your light, is your light dependent on how people respond to your light? Is you living for Jesus dependent on how they respond to it? Because a lot of us, man, when we're comfortable culturally and, and we're like, all right, I feel pretty safe I'll claim Jesus, I'll live for Jesus, I'll share Romans 6.23 at my workplace, but only if it doesn't get me in trouble because I don't want the risk. Sometimes we allow how people respond to us living for Jesus to affect how we live for Jesus. If you do that, it's gonna be very hard to keep living for Jesus. That's what I've learned. Jesus is calling full-time disciples to shine fully in this dark world because I love John 16. Verse 33, this will be on the screen as well. It says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. When we look at John 8, when we look at this woman caught in adultery, I can't imagine being this woman, can you? I mean, some of you have heard this for many years. Place yourself in her shoes, because I've heard this for many years. Place yourself in her shoes. Do you think this is one of the worst moments of her life? I don't want to speculate. I don't know what all she's been through. I don't know if this is rock bottom for her, but it's got to be close, right? I mean, have you ever been dragged in the street? I haven't. Have you ever in your life had religious leaders grab you, drag you in the street, and take your private sins and display them publicly? Have you ever been there? It's a little hard for me to relate, right? Can you imagine how this woman must feel? Can you imagine the loneliness? Can you imagine the shame and hurt? And then to top it all off, she's dragged to the possible Messiah of the world. They've been hearing about him. He's been doing miracles. He just fed the 5,000. He said he's living water. She gets dragged to him. And they're like, all right, Jesus, time to stone her. What are we going to do? Can you imagine how hurt this woman must be? This has to be close to rock bottom. And for you, I would ask you, can you remember the time in your life when you hit rock bottom? I can. 
It wasn't a good feeling. And this woman is sitting here in the middle of shame, hurt, and loneliness. And what I love is Jesus, when he speaks to her, look with me at verse 10, if you will. Jesus stood up. He says to this woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, neither do I condemn you. The only one who could have thrown a stone was Jesus, and he didn't. The only one that could have actually thrown a stone because he had no sin was Jesus, and he didn't. In fact, I wanna tell you, he showed her, watch this, he showed her grace and mercy before he ever told her to live right. He showed her grace and mercy before he ever told her to get her act together. The grace and mercy came before the action steps. In fact, I'll put this quote on the screen of the commentary. Listen to this. It says this, Jesus demonstrated grace and mercy to the woman, removing her condemnation before he told her to start living right. A true understanding of grace and mercy does not endorse or promote sin. Rather, it's designed to produce gratitude and holiness. We do not obey God in order to earn forgiveness. Aren't you grateful for that truth this morning? (laughs) We don't obey God in order to earn forgiveness. There's many of you in this room this morning who you're trying to earn God's forgiveness. That's a tiring, tiring journey. You're climbing a mountain that cannot be reached. It goes on to say this. It says, rather, grace and mercy are to motivate our obedience. When we truly understand God's amazing grace, we do not go out and merely sin less. We go out and seek to sin no more. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'll put this on the screen. Grace and mercy came before the action steps because our action steps must be motivated by that grace and mercy. By that grace and mercy. That every action step we have comes from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Now here's what we do. We try to work our way out of anxiety. We try to work our way out of fear. We try to work our way into God's graces. We try to work our way back to restoration. When finances get hard, like that testimony said, we try to work our way to overcoming that financial burden. But first, before we get out of any sin, before we get out of any darkness, any anxiety, any worry, any fear, any bitterness, we have to experience the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And man, I know we got a lot of incredible believers in here who've been doing it longer than I have, but I also believe in a room this big, there's people in here who have never experienced God's grace and mercy for the first time. You know how you do? You don't get more religious. You don't get more put together. Jesus never says, put the pieces together and then come to me. I want you all cleaned up. No, he says, come to me exactly as you are in your mess, in your hurt, in your brokenness. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross that completely renews and restores us. Hallelujah. And aren't you grateful for the blood of Jesus Christ that he would take our place? And so for you who's here this morning, if you don't know Jesus, you repent. And man, I know that's a churchy word. <laughs> I get it. When I was 21 sitting in service, I was like, what in the world does that mean? You turn from your sin. You say, look, I'm tired of living in darkness. I'm tired of doing it my way. And for some of you believers, there may be some idols in your life that need to come down this morning. I've had them. You repent, you turn from it, and you are restored every single time. And so this morning, if you want a relationship with Jesus, we would celebrate that with you. I've watched my dad work hard all his life. He fixes cars, he works in the cold, he works in the heat, doesn't matter, he's working. I've watched him work hard all his life, watched him provide food for our family. I've tried to adopt his work ethic because he works hard. There's a lot of you in this room that work hard. 
You work hard at your job. You work hard to provide for your family. You work hard to love your children. Praise God for it. But let me tell you, aren't you grateful that you don't have to work hard for the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? You just receive it. You receive it. And so I have one sub-point I want to give you if you'd write this down that I know somebody needs to hear, and it's this. Jesus outshines your shame, hurt, and loneliness. Jesus outshines your shame, hurt, and loneliness. For this woman, she's caught in adultery. Her private life is displayed publicly. What is it for you? I love Ephesians chapter five, verses eight to 10. It says, for you were once a darkness. I know some of you are still writing notes. We'll put that back up on the screen in a minute. Ephesians five, eight to 10 says, for you were once darkness, but now you are the light of the world, the light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. I wanna tell you, just as Jesus stood up for this woman, Jesus Christ stands up for you. There is nobody else you need by your side when you stand before God Almighty than Jesus Christ himself. He is the good shepherd. He is your lawyer. He is your savior. He is the Messiah. He is the light of the world. For a long time, my shame, if I can be real, my shame, my hurt came from placing my personal value in false gods that couldn't give me my value. Placing my worth in the world and every single time you chase after sin, all you get in return is shame, hurt, loneliness. It never fulfills you or restores you. I, for a long time, if I can be honest with you, placed my personal value in idols that couldn't give me value. And I'm still learning this. And I wanna give you two verses on idols because I think that this is a big thing this morning as we look at this text. The first one is Isaiah 45, verse 20. It says, come, gather together and draw near, you fugitives of the nations. Those who carry their wooden idols, look at this verse, you know this, and pray to a God who cannot save, have no knowledge. A false God that has no value itself can't give you value. A God that's dead, a speaker, a statue, the approval of people can't give you personal worth and value. Not only that, though, Colossians 3, verse 5 says, therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. And then when it comes to personal value, for anybody this morning who struggles with what is their life worth, what is their soul worth, how much value do you really have? Do you matter? Does your life matter? One of the best verses comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. It says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. I think that when it comes to self-worth, there's a couple areas that we put our self-worth in, and that's career, success, and relationships career, success, and relationships. And if I could give you a word on placing your hope in anything besides the light of Jesus, it would be this. If you allow your self-worth to be determined by your success, you are saying that you are only worth what you can produce. And you will constantly work for worth. Think about that this morning. 
There's a lot of believers in the room that by the lie that our self-worth can be determined by our success. What's gonna happen is you're gonna spend a lifetime trying to work for your worth and it's never going to add up. Because what happens when we place our hope and our trust in our career is great when our career goes well. It's great when things are flying high. And as a basketball coach at the high school level for a few years before I got saved, every win I had at Bartlett High, oh, I was the man. Oh, I was the man. When we won, parents loved me. It was great. The parents of the kids loved me when we won, but when we lost, parents come knocking on that office door. Hey, little Johnny needs some more playing time, coach. When you win, people love you. When you lose, people are against you. I couldn't put my faith in coaching. And for a lot of you, what happens is when, when our faith and our value and our worth is placed in our career, when our career goes down, our whole identity goes down. Our worth goes down. Our value goes down. And we wonder why we're struggling. We wonder why we're insecure, why we hurt. It's because we've placed our value in earthly treasures when God has told us to place our value in heavenly treasures. You can't do it. It's the same with relationships. You get on social media, everybody's got a perfect family. <laughs> you get on social media, everybody got a perfect family. I always wanted one of the beach pictures with the matching white shirts and khaki pants. <laughs> I thought that was like, you've made it. My family, we never got there. <laughs> We're still working there. Yeah. And I'm not down on social media, it's fine. But you look at every other family on Facebook, it's easy to get insecure about your own, ain't it? Oh, and you ain't got a beach picture. <laughs> you ain't got matching khakis. <laughs> oh, it's easy to compare family. It's easy to put our faith and our value and our worth in our family. And then what happens? Families are made up, newsflash, of broken sinners. Every family, matter of fact, not just yours. <laughs> That's right, amen. <laughs> amen. And when our family starts to shift, the foundation of our family starts to rock, our whole identity rocks. Jesus has a different intention for you. I want you to understand your worth and your value, and then I'm gonna move on. Your worth and your value was already determined by God at creation and by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's when your worth and your value were determined. Be encouraged this morning. You don't have to put your worth in this world. But not only that, number two, the light calls for active and humble followers. So not only number one, as you're taking notes, the light shines at your lowest, praise God that it does. But number two, the light calls for active and humble followers. When we read John 8, 12, we often miss that Jesus says, those who follow me, that there's a condition to walking in the light. Then once you know Jesus Christ, you are saved, you have your salvation, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But when it comes to walking in this world, having understanding, having clarity, having insight, there's a condition to walking in the light. And that condition is following Jesus. Now, in our world, we have a lot of passive followers of Jesus Christ. And I struggle with being passive sometimes myself. And I just wanna ask you this morning, are you an active or passive follower? Are you following Jesus Side by side, wherever he goes, you go, or are you kind of trying to follow from a distance? Because I've been there too. Like I claim Jesus, I'm with him right there, but I've got just enough distance between us to where I don't risk losing 
anything or being persecuted because sometimes we try to do that. No, he's calling for active and humble followers. In fact, whenever it speaks about Jesus and following him, it always speaks on humility. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, listen to this. It says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Man, that's tough, ain't it? The following verses are tougher. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Listen to this. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. How hard is that? And that's tough. When somebody insults me, it's like guard up. Like I'm coming for you. Like I got to fight my flesh because when we're insulted, our natural reaction is, man, I'm going to insult him back. Better not say something about my mama. <laughs> say something about your mama. Just kidding. <laughs> he didn't insult, return. he didn't return insult for insult. It says when he suffered, he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's a different kind of trust. And then it says in verse 24, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Aren't you grateful for that this morning? Amen. When I was in the seventh grade, my dad said something to me that I've never forgotten. I was a seventh grader. I was really, really good at making bad decisions. I had become a pro. I knew how to make poorly timed decisions. And I was really good at it, it was my thing. And I went to my dad when I was in the seventh grade, this is no joke, we would ride bikes all the time together. And I went to my dad and said, hey dad, I'm gonna go riding, but I'm gonna go riding on my own this time. And my dad was like, all right, cool, what time are you gonna leave? So I told my dad, I said, I'm, I'm gonna head out about 10 p.m. tonight. <laughs> my dad always gave wise, wise counsel. He looked at me, he said, you gonna take a flashlight? It's like, dad, what? He's like, Daniel, I recommend taping a flashlight on the front of that bike. It's like, dad, first off, I'm not gonna do that. I would look like a loser. There are people my age in this neighborhood. You'll see where this story's going. It's not rocket science, but it has a great application. I said, dad, there's girls in this neighborhood. I'm not taping a flashlight on my bicycle. He's like, Daniel, this is gonna end bad. It's like, no, it's not. This is what I said. This is my reasoning, all right? I said, dad, I know this neighborhood so well. That's what I said. I said, dad, I know this neighborhood so well. I chose my experience and the knowledge of this neighborhood. I said, it's not gonna, it's not gonna cause any troubles. I can ride through this neighborhood at night. It's perfectly fine. I head out on my bike, I'm riding for about five minutes. And honestly, it was kind of cool. Like, I felt like a bad boy. It's like seventh grade. I'm riding around all alone at night. I was like, ah. I could get used to this. <laughs> like chewing bubble gum and stuff. <laughs> Trying to look tough. No flashlight. <laughs> I did have the reflector though for cars, just in case. Tiny safety measures. <clears throat> and I'm riding for about five minutes. I come up on Hulon Street, which is in my neighborhood. Like I, this is a true story. There's no exaggeration in the story, I promise. It ends poorly. And I come up on this large hill and I start going down this hill, a hill I've gone down a thousand times. I know this hill. What I didn't realize though, is I'd never been on this hill at night and there were not as many streetlights as I remembered from the daytime. <laughs> Street's a little dark. And so I'm riding on the right side of the road and I'm feeling good. And like uh, 15 feet ahead of me, I see something underneath a tree, kind of in the shadow and I'm not sure what it is. I get a little bit closer, I realize, oh, that's a parked car. And I'm like, oh, that's a black parked car. That's why it's hard to see. <laughs> and I keep getting closer 
And I do what anybody does. I froze. <laughs> I locked up. I didn't veer to the right or the left. I acted like it was going to move for me. <laughs> I didn't move. I kept going. I'm telling you, arrogant. <laughs> and man, when I tell you the story ends bad, I, I go straight into this car. I smack the hood of this car. I go over my bicycle. I'm laid out on the hood of this car. The worst part is I had my earbuds in and the music didn't stop. So I'm laying on the hood of this car with music still playing in my ears. I look like a loser. <laughs> and this is not the cool guy effect I was going for as a seventh grader. And I come home, this is what my dad says to me. I've never forgotten it. He didn't realize what he was saying at the time. I realize now years later, I walk in, I'm a little bruised, I'm a little messed up. He says, what happened? Kind of knowing what was gonna happen. I say, I you know, ran into a parked car. And <laughs> he's like, ah, been there. You know, his experience, he's like, eh, parked car, huh? Black? He's like, yep. He's like, ah. Hardest spot, you know, we're like bonding over this. Oh uh, yeah, kind of a little bit out from the curve. I was like, yeah, uh, I was 13, dude, you know? <laughs> and uh, this is what he said to me, it's, it's foundational. He said, he looks at me and he goes, Daniel, buddy, which is how he always began his sentences with me. He said, buddy, no matter how confident you feel, you can't navigate in the dark without the light. And he said, this is what you did. You set out to go do something that you couldn't do on your own. And years later, I thought about this. I chose to put my faith in my experience of the neighborhood instead of an actual light that could lead me because I was ashamed to have that light on my bicycle. I told you you would see where this is going. I believe there's a lot of us in this room who, if we're honest, when we get a little prideful, we place our faith in our experience and our knowledge of being a believer instead of trusting the actual light of the world to lead us. When that happens, church family, when you place your faith in your experience and your knowledge, praise God that we have both, but experience and knowledge are no substitute for the light of the world himself. Don't ever get too prideful to stop relying on Jesus for anything anything. Do not ever allow yourself to get to a place where you think you've got enough stored up that you don't need the daily desperation for Jesus Christ to get you through that day. Give me this day our daily bread. You need Jesus every single day. Whether you've been a believer for 60 years or whether you've been a believer for 60 minutes, the need for Jesus never changes. It never changes. And in this story, I realized that me being ashamed of the light brings a whole lot of trouble on me. I don't know where you're heading to this week, work, a family that doesn't love Jesus maybe. You're, maybe you're just heading to a dark place. Let me encourage you. You have the light of the world going with you. If I could turn your attention to just one more thing before we end. Spiritual strongholds require spiritual weapons. I talked a little bit about anxiety and fear and worry and what the woman caught in adultery must have been feeling. When you have a spiritual stronghold like that, you need spiritual weapons, which is prayer and the word. And you need it every single day. But the Pharisees in this moment, what Jesus does is he reminds them of their sin. He doesn't beat them over the head. He doesn't get in their way. He doesn't stop them. All he does when they come to him with a super prideful, big ego he just simply reminds them of their own sin. And yet, did you notice, they still walked away not asking 
for forgiveness and mercy. Now, we don't know what happened in their heart. We don't know what happened after this, and I'm not gonna guess, but they didn't go to Jesus falling at his feet in this moment, even though they were reminded of their own sin, as they should have. It's just the woman in Jesus. So let me remind you, you can be in the right place and yet have a totally wrong posture. You can come to church. You can sit through a service like this. Be reminded of where God is convicting you and challenging you. And just like those Pharisees, walk away and go have lunch at Cheddar's. Which I hope all of us don't go to Cheddar's now. They'll be overwhelmed. Somebody was like, ah, that actually sounds pretty good. (laughs) Whatever it is that the Lord is doing in your heart, I pray that you would allow him to do it. I have one more quote I'll put on the screen. It says this, that pride often comes from a lack of awareness to our own sin, but a hyper-awareness to others' sin. If you wanna know with a root of pride, when we get super big ego, it's because pride is when we're aware of others' sin, but not very aware of our own sin. And so for you this morning, I imagine the woman who has a reason to have a hard heart. She looks at Jesus and she calls him Lord. Can you imagine how beautiful that moment is? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. Don't you want to be seen and known and loved the way this woman is with Jesus? He says, neither do I condemn you. And in the loneliness and the hurt and the shame and the pain that she's feeling, she realizes two things. That not only is she not alone in her sin, but she's not alone because she has a savior who died for her, who rose from the grave for her the Messiah who was coming into the world and the Messiah who is today, she knows him. Do you?